0: Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to Inside Cyber Diplomacy.
1: Between the two of us, I think we know almost everyone involved in cyber diplomacy. And the idea behind this is really to have frank conversations with those leaders in this area and bring that to the rest of the world, this new area of diplomacy, and talk to these leaders about what's going on. Our plan is that you'll hear things on this podcast that you're not going to hear anywhere else frank, not scripted, direct conversations. Hope you like it. I know we will. So please listen in.
0: Hi, welcome to another episode of Inside Cyber Diplomacy. I'm here with Chris Painter, and we're very lucky today to have direct from New York, and the OEWG, Michelle Markov, who is the leading cyber diplomat in the United
1: States. And who I dub for a long time, a long time, uh, uh, the mother of norms.
2: It's true. It was a hard birth, let me tell you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so uh, you want to tell us about the OEWG? You're happy, right?
2: Well, well the first thing I'll tell you is that I didn't go to New York. I, everything was done remotely. There were only two cyber diplomats from capitals there. One was Andre Krutsky. The other was uh, Australia's uh, Johanna, uh, yeah. Johanna Weaver. So the rest of us were all in different time zones and doing coordination by a variety of secure apps on the negotiation. And it was really quite a quite an experience. It was not the same as having, you know, coffee in the Vienna Cafe in the basement of the UN building. I was having bilats with Beijing in the middle of the night. So it was it was something else. Well, you know, the OEWG, there's been plenty being tweeted about it, I guess. And it was a very interesting negotiation, I'd say. Many people may not know that it was a russia backed activity, and there was a how shall we say a schism two years ago between the u s and uh russia and Russia started its own u n first committee activity and the u s quite ironically took over the russia long standing group of governmental I- experts activity which suddenly became the US activity. So because of the pandemic, you know, carefully planned efforts to make sure that both ended within a, a week or so of one another, fell by the wayside, and uh, we were all thrown into timing uh, disarrays. So the OEWG, which was conducted over a two year period pursuant to A Russian resolution which tried to diverge from prior consensus agreements and which we and many of our Western allies opposed was coming to a conclusion in the form of a 25 page report which involved all of 193 member states of the UN, which obviously getting agreement between 15 or 20 is difficult enough. But when you multiply that by many tens, you get a, a much more difficult arrangement. So we were coming down to the wire. We had been very ably led by the Swiss ambassador, Ambassador Jörg Lauber, who had been the permanent representative of Switzerland in New York and took on this. Activity and I give him the bulk of the credit for coming out with such a well crafted report that 193 countries could sign on. So, what does it do? We, the US, we, many of our allies had expected that the Russians and their allies would try to diminish or weaken prior affirmations that had gone on in the three groups of governmental experts of 2010, 2013, and 2015. Those affirmations affected and affirmed the applicability of international law to cyberspace, devised and affirmed 11 norms that we think should apply or do apply below the threshold of the use of force, and a series of confidence-building measures designed to allow states to effectively collaborate in real time. We presumed that Russia uh, would try to rewrite or denigrate those achievements. Interestingly enough, not only did Russia not do that in the final analysis, though they had spent the better part of two years disavowing the report that they signed on to. They left those affirmations alone. And China, also having been a reluctant participant and a reluctant affirmer of international law and cyberspace, did pretty much an about-face and, in fact, insisted that the prior key that is what had been agreed before, be cited, indeed quoted, as foundational. And so that put the U.S., when we were prepared to be somewhat disagreeable if all of those bad things had come to pass, it put the U.S. in the position of seeing that all our hard work for over the prior decade was in fact reaffirmed by 193 member states of the United Nations so on balance it was very favorable toward reaffirming the foundational nature of what we call the framework for responsible state behavior the downside uh, is that the russians have a uh, i believe a long term plan and they have a 5 year five-year OEWG going forward, starting, I guess, in June of this year, and they have very different goals in mind for where all of this should, in fact, end up. And their interests have been for two decades and continue to be circumscribing of Technology through the use of legally binding obligations, sort of what we would in the past have called arms control types of constraints on states. So while we achieve something notable, I think, uh, the future is a bit rocky because there are a couple of hurdles to leap over in the next few months. The first, well, is this. The GGE, which the U.S. and many others supports, which is being conducted at 25 states and being chaired by another very able diplomat, Brazilian ambassador, uh, Guilherme Patriota. And because the OEWG ended already with consensus, my question is whether Russia has much incentive to join a consensus on that when Their very basic interests, they've decided, are threatened by the existence of the GGE. The second other hurdle, which is not always on the uh, end of the tongue of many cyber experts, is the fact that Russia succeeded also two years ago in passing a resolution that would begin more binding treaty negotiations in another committee, the Legal Affairs Committee of the UN, to devise a cybercrime instrument to eclipse and potentially replace the what we call the Budapest Convention that took 10 years to negotiate and of which Chris was a major player in. Uh, And that organizing, the organizing um, meeting for that activity was, again, the victim of a postponement because of COVID. And it is also happening in May. So one can't help but have some trepidation about how these may come together how some of the recommendations coming out of the OEWG might penetrate into a cybercrime instrument and how arms control elements could infuse both the third committee cybercrime d- discussions as well as the five year plan for this continuing OEWG so i'll stop there i'm sure you have many questions so
1: I think just breaking that apart, you know, there's lots there, obviously. And so uh-huh. one, one question is, you know, for the OEWG report itself, and I think you're right, I think there was a lot of skepticism two years ago, there were articles about warring Russian and American resolutions that this would never be rectified. Uh-huh. So a lot of that didn't play out, as you said, and and the positive is you got 193 countries, or more countries at least, this, you know, talking about these issues. But, you know, there had been affirmations in the first committee before, right, after the 2015 report, for instance, mm-hmm. all countries voted on that. But getting every country to agree is big. But but what, you know, just in terms of the report itself, what is it that didn't make it in that you wanted to get in? I saw your, your signing statement uh, that you made, you know, and you, you referenced some of them there. What 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 from the US
2: perspective was wanting? It's not so much that it was more a sin of commission than omission there uh, were statements that we were unable to remove, which called, and this has happened in the GGE reports before, so it's not entirely new, called for the development of new norms. So read that as the semaphore, the secret language of treaty stuff. Plus in the last paragraph, Even though the report itself is supposed to be only consensus, it was noted that there were calls for a treaty instrument that were Mm non-consensus. And that was in there too. So if I had to point at two things I was unhappy about, it was really kind of the fact that the pointers, the diplomatic pointers are all there in the direction of things that are very troubling. Why are more norms troubling? The U.S. has taken a very careful path at looking at the issues of war and peace from the perspective, not that the technology itself is bad or good, but that it states use of technology and the effects that that technology could have That is troubling in the way states might misuse that technology. So the notion that there would be more norms and it's there was a debate in the OEDWG about whether the statements that were being made, even in the report, were, quote, what they called technology neutral. That is not specifying that it was a technology that was a problem. I suspect that's not dead. I suspect there will be more attempts in an arms control context in the future to point toward types of technologies one might want to circ- circumscribe. We've always found that very dangerous. And then the other problem with excessive norm building and after the 2015 report if you remember Chris there was a cottage industry and generation of norms I mean there was just plethora of norms what you do get when you get a lot of norms is you get regulation so you get you get global regulation of the technology which you know has truly flourished in the absence of regulation so Certainly circumstances have changed, you know, the issue of misinformation, disinformation, how platforms can be used, uh, exploitation, and all of this are raising new questions about the utility of further normative statements. But my feeling is that if we think more norms are necessary, let's discuss what is necessary and then decide whether they ought to be a, a globally imposed
1: norm. I don't think regulation is completely a dirty word, but regulation is Mm. political, too. So regulation means different things in different places. Right. I do think the way the report handled things like healthcare and like the core of the Internet was good. It said they were articulations of an existing norm rather than creating new ones. But what I worried about, too, is you had this very lengthy chair summary, which was sort of the dumping ground for everything. Not really everything that people didn't agree to, because a lot was left out of that too. And so there's yes. things in there, but I found there was very troubling language in there too. So, so how do you view the chair's summary and whether that's really operative?
2: Well, that was truly the uh, the devil's deal. Had there not been a venue, a place where the yes, very retrograde statements of Many of our non allies, non partners and the more authoritarian governments, if had there not been a place to put these contributions, uh, there would not have been consensus. So it was a very deft action by the chair to be able to subsume all of those non consensus items. Under a summary under his name, and he smoothed them out to some degree, and you're right, not everything was included. the The more deplorable statements were not included. There was also a, a second piece of that chair's summary which talked about norms that was more in line with the views of the West and Western allies. But uh, you know, in terms of the role that that's going to play, it is certainly the feeling, of those who made the contribution to the chair summary and the the less happy parts of it uh, that that will be the the building blocks of what goes on in the OEWG mm-hmm. in the future mm-hmm. and so that's why i said that the the challenge is yet to come because the uh, you know the unfortunate tendencies and policies of some of these countries the more authoritarian ones are you know all bundled together now in that in that chair summary and will would at least according to the Russian ambassador would be taken forward. You know, and and if that's the case, then and depending upon what happens in the GGE, the outcome of these events that will all conclude in May, the GGE and the organizational meeting for the cybercrime negotiation. That will really color what it is that we we uh, on our side, we the U.S. with our, our key allies and partners, really how we treat. I think the U.N. going forward.
0: Why do you think the Chinese went along? Was it the wanting to play nice with the new administration, or
2: you know, Jim? <laughs> I I was scratching my head on this the entire time. So uh, we were lucky because if you remember in the past the Chinese rarely actually gave edits on anything except to strike out whole pages. In this particular case, they came in with happy glads, you know, quote, quote, the 15 report, they came in with actually helpful edits. And Wang Lei and I talked from Beijing and went through the document and agreed on most everything. There are a few things that You know, the the repetition of the word sovereignty got a little bit old, but um, I couldn't get that out. But for the most part, uh, at least initially, found common ground and a way to go forward. Why? I don't know. My suspicion was like yours, that maybe they wanted to give things a chance. On the other hand, if you look at the reports last night out of the Alaska meeting, it didn't look Mm -hmm. like it went that way. (laughs) <laughs> the tweets, anyway, were pretty horrific and dramatic. So um, I don't know, but it could be that you know China views its role in in a multilateral venue with 193 and and the entirety of the NAM as a leadership role. But I will tell you absolutely, if that if China had not insisted had not insisted on quotes and references to the 2015 report and prior GGE reports against which countries like Iran were absolutely fixed against, it wouldn't have happened. So, you know, China played a very important role in making sure that the foundational elements of what we had done in the GGE persisted, including the affirmation of international law. So go figure. I, I don't know the answer to that question.
1: China did object, as I understand it, at least. That there was. So for the first time, Lauber brought in uh, other stakeholders for at least some informal meetings. And right. it was certainly different for this kind of setting, right? And some states, you know, the usual suspects sort of objected to that. They didn't really want that to happen. So they were more informal. Did you think that worked in the process? Do you think that should be expanded?
2: Well, I mean, don't forget that he, both Lauber and Patriota, did a regional dog and pony show. They went around the world. And those meetings in, like, OAS, which I attended, and the meeting in Slovakia, included private sector, multi-stakeholder entities. And so it was not. Uh, it was not the first time. It was an attempt, and Patriota showed up so that he could hear too. So I think it was the whole process so far of both the OEWG and GGE has been much more welcoming. Now the veto on having even more expanded was by one of our not allies. So that prevented there being a much more expansive participation. So far, it was helpful. But, you know, things like that are helpful when you have experienced diplomats who know how to weigh and balance the overarching value of the contribution. Because as we know, in the past, you know, some private sector entities have been pretty much solely focused on protecting their own, their own prerogatives and their own assets. And that's not kind of an international normative way of proceeding.
1: One thing you said that, that you know, we've talked about in the past is you've been very successful and for tactical reasons of keeping things like cybercrime out of the first committee discussions. Uh, and that's more tactical, I think, and strategic, just trying to make those, not have all those arguments in one place, human rights and everything else, although they do come in there. With the stuff happening in the third committee now, and what you said earlier, does the U.S. feel you need to kind of draw those things more together? You can't really have two separate stovepipe negotiations, given what you'd said earlier.
2: I'm hoping you can, because I think the subject matter demands it. In one case, in the first committee, we're about war and peace, preventing escalation, preventing miscalculation. In the second, it's about, or it should be about, how one deals with crimes primarily from, uh, non-state actors and others and how countries collaborate across borders to effectively investigate and prosecute those crimes. So I think of them very differently. And, and you know better than I that it has been the, you know, the key verity of the approach of your old agency of the Department of Justice to preserve uh, the Budapest Convention as much as possible. If you start meshing a lot of these things together, you get what the Russians want, which is an omnibus, sovereignty-laden set of binding legal norms which recognize sovereign boundaries in cyberspace uh, and disregard things like Uh, the UN Declaration on Human Rights. And so I would continue to keep it quite separate.
1: But in a little different way. The way you and other countries are approaching this, often you might have different negotiators doing crime stuff just because the nature Uh of it is. But given the dangers that you laid out, it seems that the folks who were in that first committee discussion need to be paying a lot of attention to that third committee discussion, if not being involved in this.
2: Well, I think you would be pleased now, Chris, that We have a very broad scoped, like minded group with over, gosh, you know, oops, a huge number of participants. And we do cross reference and info share on these things. Now, obviously, in governments, different people do crime than do war. But yes, there are now that there are cyber diplomats and cyber people in the MFA who keep their fingers kind of on the keys of all of these things, I think there is cross fertilization, certainly. And obviously, you know, in the U.S. government and the State Department in particular, you know, SCCI, SCCI, the way it was set up as a coordinator, provides supporting expert uh, policy advice to INL, to others who are leading on these things.
0: What comes after the OEWG? Now you've got that one out of the way. I mean, you've got to manage the negotiations. But what's
1: next? Let me just add to that a little bit. One of the things that was mentioned a lot is Mm. this uh, POA, this plan of action. So Mm. how does that all tie
2: in? You know, it's nothing new that there has been a discussion for more than five or six years on how the UN or house member states would want to institutionalize these first committee discussions. Now, Jim, as, as you know, in the first committee, whether, you know, it's outer space or nuclear weapons or something, that there are standing groups and bodies that uh, often get constructed and funded to carry on uh, discussions over the long term. So the discussion about what is the best format to do that for cyber has long been a subject, you know, remembering we've evolved a great uh, a great way since the beginning of all these GGEs when uh, we had to beat the bushes to get participants to actually uh, join the negotiations. Now everybody wants in. So the, the great advantage of the OEWG was a membership of 193. That was clearly that has uh, taken on the imaginations of all member states. And, you know, while something you said, Chris, about yes, all states have affirmed the GGE outcome in 2015, that was in the form of a resolution. Here you have a two year activity where states together issued a 25 page report. It's a different kettle of fish. So, so the question is, what do you do for institutionalization? There, there have been many discussions over the years. There was a discussion about using a model used for base discussions, copious, as a architecture for something like that. It kind of goes along and gets along. And every once in a while, it puts out something useful. Uh, it was stood up. Or- I missed that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was set up initially to actually come up with a treaty. Mm-hmm. And that hasn't really been where we want to go. We're kind of in the customary behavioral side of things now. For my own part, personally, uh, for the longest time, I thought that as necessary, uh, restarting a group of governmental experts was the thing to do. But clearly, now that the imaginations of all states are captured by this, the the issue of inclusivity has become paramount. So this notion of a program of action, which is an architecture used in the UN already on small arms and light weapons, it hasn't been fleshed out for the cyber activity, but it was a notion of the French co co-partnered with Egypt interestingly, and uh, had now 51 or more co-sponsors to have stand up this all-inclusive standing body that would develop an agenda and have, you know, continuing discussions. And even though the U.S. has not signed up as a co-sponsor, we didn't want to scare anybody else off. We we nonetheless support the notion and the idea, although I'd like to see more of how it would be implemented. So that issue has been floating around for for a year now. And uh, the French and the Egyptians both had the ambition to get it mentioned in the OEWG and have it also mentioned in the GGE. So it was mentioned in with some trouble in the uh, OEWG there was some backs and backing and forthing about proposals putting proposals in that hadn't been discussed in great detail and um, and so it's you know my thinking that I did not I, I didn't mind it being mentioned in the OEWG but if it was going to be something useful it needed to not be subsumed by the Russian OEWG five-year plan, and that's how it was developing, that it was going to be something controlled by Russia and trotted out like on Red Square once a year and talked about. Um, So we got some somewhat ambiguous language, I think, which allows it to be discussed in other places, and uh, I will certainly argue that it should be included in the GGE report. So where does that leave us? If if we don't like the trajectory and the prospects of working under Russia on a five-year plan that seems like it's inexorably hurtling toward binding treaty obligations, then it seems to me that the POA offers the next best alternative, competitive alternative, The question is, would we lose a lot of the non-aligned if we went on on a separate resolution uh, on the program of action? It's possible. Would we lose Egypt? I don't know. But it seems to me it should be a standalone, independent activity that should be discussed. And it could be, for example, although I can't tell you I have any support for this whatsoever, it could be regardless of how the GGE comes out, a follow-on to the GGE. That is, I could replace the resolution that created this last GGE with one that proposes a standing up of the POA. There are many who want discussions to revert back to a single lane, but if the single lane is the Russian's lane uh, and it's going in a direction that is anathema to us, I think we have to, you know, kind of stick to our guns and decide what is the best vision for the globe. You think this is the last GG, whether they reach consensus or not? I think it ought to be the last. Remember in 2015, my goal was not to break new ground. My goal was to really set out in some detail the rationale for what we did and explained to countries how to implement. Well, you know, it did not work well. Things went went, the environment was so poisonous in 2016 that we failed to even get that kind of basic document out. And the document now, which I think is extremely well written, does exactly that. It doesn't break new ground. It doesn't add new norms. It simply describes what we did and why, and then how one might go about building capacity to implement these things.
0: One of the topics that seems to have obsessed people is how do you, how do you get norms implementation? How do you move them from just words? And there's been a number of proposals in the academic world where are you on that? Where are you on norms? Well, I, I don't
2: even I, like the word. But. What you need to get a government to do, and it's true about cyber, it's true about anything, is to focus on what the, the issue is and the problem, bring it up close to their faces, and look at it and, and come to an independent conclusion, yay verily. Uh, that's all we've really ever wanted states hmm. to do. We, but they needed a guidebook, I think. Because, I mean, some of the GGE reports were, you know, a little cyber nerdy and a little diplo nerdy and really needed to be explained. And so I think the OEWG report does this. Nobody can walk away and say that they weren't heavily inundated with explanations and meanings of all of these things throughout a two year discussion of the norms of international law. And even though there are you know, abundant disagreements, nobody can say that they, that their government has not now affirmed this. So I think that that was the accomplishment that they have affirmed it now implementation, what it specifically meant, especially if you look at the 2015 report and the, um, the 11 norms, those were, you know, three of them were proposed by by the US, by me. Um, but many of the others were proposed by a variety of states and they didn't have kind of the in-depth examination in all cases that they might have had. And so now we're going back and explaining what they mean and what a state would do to affirm this. So I think we are on the path. And I think that given the opening that the OEWG has provided, that the GGE report will be very complementary to what has happened. And then the question is, what do we need more GGEs to do? You know, it's not clear that that's what we need. That's why I think the POA is a reasonable way forward. What do you think of the... Work that came out of the high-level
0: panel and its report, and the appointment of a UN tech envoy. Uh, okay.
2: First, I'm going to offer a disclaimer that we, the U.S., decided not to kind of participate as one of the champions or advisors, uh, but we, you know, we keep close up with those that have. My reaction, first of all is how in a in the most democratic institution in the world can you have such an anti-democratic opaque you know insensitive emergence of something from from the secretary general you have a few people with very explicit vested interests in doing something trying to impose an agenda and a will on 193 countries. Who thinks that's a good idea? I don't. And especially in the security side of things where they simply dismissed everything that we've done since 1998, you know? So all of this stuff that we did was was literally by the, the. I hesitate to call him a gentleman, the gentleman who was leading all of this, you know, uh, was simply disregarded and, you know, to be tossed on the trash heap of history, apparently. Uh, and he was going to impose his own
0: view. Yeah, he told me to, uh, when he looked at cyberspace, he saw a vacuum that the UN had to rush in to fill. I tweaked his well, words a little bit.
2: Well, no, he, you know, he and I have had face to face set twos. I, I want to watch my language.
0: Good idea. (laughs) Okay.
2: Having a report which can comment on the gaps in where things are, you know, gaps on capacity building, gaps on, on where more things need to be done. Surely that's useful, but to propose an agenda and, you know, with lots of tentacles coming off of it that just is supposed to eclipse everything everybody else did by an and and all of this by a non expert what a weird situation you know so I don't have I don't have much pleasant to say because frankly it hasn't touched us as for a tech envoy it's always helpful to have somebody who is really knowledgeable to uh, elevate an issue and if that was going to be an inevitability, I certainly thought that there were some people who were being kind of bandied about as candidates who might be of tremendous value uh, in, in elevating and explaining to the world, you know, to get, you know, to get affirmation of these frameworks to, to do a good job. But, but that was clearly, there was some other, politicking going on. And so the least knowledgeable person was, you know, was appointed to that job. So I don't even know what to say about it. I don't know what the status of it at, at the moment, whether they're actually going to do anything. But I, I don't know how you can do this in the UN without being inclusive and democratizing and bringing in those that have spent decades trying to move the ball forward on it.
1: Yeah, the office is still there. Now, what they do Mm -hmm. with the position, I think, is unclear. But the Mm -hmm. office is working away. I've had discussions with them recently, too, so they're not going away. Uh, They they might be able to serve a function in trying to get the U.N., various parts of the U.N., to talk to each other. I worry a bit that, as we saw with the OEWG, there's a push to make everything U.N.-centric, and that's not where you have to do everything.
2: Well, I I don't think people are submitting to that, now, in terms of the yeah, as far as the U.N. is concerned, I mean, uh, the Undersecretary Izumi Nakamitsu has been tremendous yeah. and she is knowledgeable and she is sharp and a strong woman. And um, I can't thank her enough. She came in right at the moment that the 2016 report was falling apart <laughs> and she was bound and determined it wasn't going to happen again. And good for her. You know, I can't say enough about her. They get, you know, more people like that. And I don't think we have a problem in the UN. I don't think anybody thinks it's centric. Uh, it's got to be uh, UN centric. There is a role to play by the UN, particularly for, uh, you know, less developed countries to try to try to herd them in a in a positive direction. There is they also are careful not to overstep, I think, what they are really capable of doing. You know, they cannot be operational. So that wipes out a whole bunch of things. But it all depend. It all really depends on all of us member states and how we we convince one another to organize. Because if this five year OEWG goes off the rails and we don't get a POA, You know, the question we'll be asking ourselves is what's the future in the U.N. for these discussions if there's if there's no way forward. So
0: where do the where do the regional organizations fit in on this? Because they've done some good works, at least on CPMs.
2: Well, that's interesting (laughs) now. So, take you know, what we did back in 2009 with OSCE, right, it's a time that we were negotiating the first discussions uh, in the first successful consensus report, as short as it was. Uh, And since then, in other uh, (laughs) multilateral discussions, we took those what I think are easily digestible and familiar forms of conflict prevention and took them to regional bodies like OSCE. So, so noting that CBMs were important for real time contact, policy coordination, you know, uh, conflict prevention and things like that resonated in a body like OSCE, which was put together, in fact, to do CBMs in the, for the nuclear era in, in Europe. So we've had a tremendous amount of success there. I have been much more tentative and leery about introducing the norms discussion into these groups, because every group wants to rejigger the norms to fit their own circumstances, and you know I want them to swallow them kind of as they were printed. And the only only group that succeeded in doing any of that is uh, David Coe in Singapore got the ARF to affirm the eleven peacetime norms. But now that the OEWG has reaffirmed all of this, you can go to every state, every country, and every multilateral organizations and say, you you signed on to this. So why don't we, in the context of these regional organizations, agree to observe the framework of responsible state behavior as it's published?
1: Let me pick up on that. I mean, you said this earlier, too, that one of the values of this report is there's no question now that all the member states have affirmed these, which is great, right? And so some have written that that does, you know, create a level of accountability that you know folks should live up to those. But then the question is, you know, then this goes beyond the UN context. How do you uh, create accountability and make sure that they are? You know, that there's consequences for people who don't. And I know that you spent a lot of time on the deterrence initiative. Now, some I was waiting
0: for the consequences were to appear.
1: (laughs) I waited, I waited for a while. You spent a lot of time with that. Uh, So I have a couple questions that you can answer any way you like. But, but one, Uh how's that going? Two, uh, more generally, two, you know, there are some who say deterrence doesn't work. Stop talking about deterrence at all. You mean Jim? Including yes. Jim. Yes. Uh, Except.
2: Although Jim well, does not really say that. If you I have a bunch of pick with you. He, he
1: does, in fact, like deterrence. He doesn't say it, though.
2: Yes, he <laughs> does. No, he came full circle in his more yes, recent article. He did. Mo- he did. He did. He article. Didn't say it, but he did. You're all confused, Jim. That's all I can say. I <laughs>
0: thought he was going to hit me, so I hit him back first.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so
1: the. um the third, the third part uh, of that is, you know, there is, you know, some tools that we're using that are more, you know, some of these cyber offensive tools, and others, or at least we've talked about using. And some of those are in partnership with other countries, which is great. And some of them are more unilateral. And so the question is, you mm-hmm. know, how does that jive with the deterrence initiative? How can those things coexist as repentance pension
2: let, let me back up a little. So what did we do? think of and what did we do? So we all, as you well know, uh, went through 2014, 15, 16, and Sony and OPM and all of these things in kind of a state of chaos of some sort. Uh, And the chaos revolved around how do you evaluate the nature of these incidents or disruptions How, you know, what are the criteria you apply to them? And, oh, my gosh, you know, we've declared for 10 years that we will use any instrument of national power to uh, respond to um, a a cyber attack. But lo and behold, all the instruments of national power we have are above the threshold of the use of force. And nobody's going to approve an outcome going down a smokestack anywhere in it. in exchange for doing in Sony studios, you know? So we, we struggled through, you know, we had tried to anticipate some of this, but we but when push came to shove and when the, you know what, hit the fan and WikiLeaks and all of that stuff, it was like nobody knew what, what the process was to evaluate this. And we didn't have the instruments of national power to fit the crime. We didn't have a series of responses or consequences or ways of imposing costs on bad guys that made sense. And so that was the catalyst for this four-year project that, you know, your former office, Chris, engaged in, where I said, okay, here we are. We have these incidents. We are stymied by attribution and ecclesiastical attribution takes 2 years so we're not agile we don't know how to evaluate whether this is important to US national security or not we don't have a set of responses that are that make sense and we have no way of getting the attention of our superiors to get them to sit down be quiet and listen to what various course of action might be so that was that was the stimulus. And we want to be agile. We want to be able to respond. So we had to pre-plan. So we were asked to, on the basis of some of our ideas about this, State Department of all places was asked to write a deterrence report, a cyber deterrence report. You know, the second one that we've actually led on before, the last one being in 2008. And this one was a very different Concept, And yes, Jim Lewis, it talks about, you know, ex post facto imposition of consequences below the threshold of the use of force. And the question you might ask is what the hell the use is that? Um, and I think in your in your little missive to Cyber Command last week, you came full circle. But I agree with you on where you ended up is even though we have what we have done is construct what we call a deterrence playbook which walks principles through how one evaluate it, not just principles the whole interagency uh, a process of evaluating analyzing and then coming up with courses of action that can be considered across the entire panoply of possibilities and I, I know you're trying to get at it. I'm not sure you actually got at it in the cyber command thing. Uh, the, co- the notion of we need to be able to coerce more. Yeah, it would be nice. What do you do below the threshold of the use of force? Which, by the way, is higher than you stated in there. It actually has to has to have lethality for it to actually cross that threshold for the U.S., we have stated. Why did you make it public? What we <laughs> did was was put together... This, uh, you know, playbook to walk through this and we, it took a year and a half, two years for the whole interagency to contribute scores of consequences that are both generic consequences and tailored consequences for particular adversaries and to decide how to be able to give options to our principals and walk them through this. Now, eight cabinet secretaries signed off on this report and playbook. We had seven different lines of effort going on. You know, I think as a student of decision theory, which was my academic specialty, if followed, it gives a way to move forward and not get stuck in some of these uh, decision doom loops that we got into very easily in this. But I agree with going back to what I agree with you on, Jim. I agree with you that our consequences, which need to remain below the threshold of the use of force, are not persuasive enough. They are not coercive enough. But whether offensive cyber means, as you posit, is the way to do that, I wonder because the persistent engagement piece has not seemed to gain the attention either of key adversaries. And I do not agree with you that it is not non-escalatory. Now, it may not escalate above the threshold of the use of force, but we could certainly be in in a bits and bytes spitting war for, you know, a long time. And, of course, there's the old adage that we're more vulnerable than everybody else, as we've just demonstrated recently. I don't know if All I right. accept that anymore. All right. Anyway, so so the question is, how else can you deal with some of these things? Now, being you know an old negotiator yourself, there's a reason to talk about stability and a, also a reason to talk about, if you can get there again, uh, what actually constitutes destabilizing actions in cyberspace, right? What would either side perceive as destabilizing? And if you were able to define what that is and you were able to say that you will restrain yourself from doing that, how would you know if they did it or not? You know, no external observables, no indicators, no tactical warning. So the Mm -hmm. question is, how do you get out of this in ways that are other than the coercive things that you talked about in your article? So back at you. So so, so we we agreed
0: not to discuss any of the recent incidents <laughs> yes. uh, uh, going into this call. But, no,
2: we're not going to. You know, I'm not discussing uh, recent incidents. Yeah. I'm talking about. We're talking about theory now.
1: No, but but here's here's the question that Jim asked. I think it's a it's a fair one. Like as many of Jim's questions are. I'm not saying that was the only one he's ever raised. <laughs> but thank you. You know. Um, why not make it more public? Why you know this yeah. is the Doctor Strange Love thing? Why why have a doomsday device of no? How one long have
0: that? we been saying that? We've been saying that now for eleven years. Yeah, that scene um, from that movie. We were going to release it on May Day. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I mean, <laughs> not, I,
2: you no Day. no 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 no. I don't accept this. I don't accept this at all. <laughs> I, it's we are we are not opaque here. There was a. Thirty-page unclassified precede to the deterrence report. There ha- was a uh, a public statement signed by twenty-seven countries in the in at the high-level week uh, under John's uh, former deputy secretary of state yeah. John Sullivan, twenty nineteen, that talked about the imposition of consequences and all of that. There have been. You know, well, me. I talk about it repeatedly. Uh, There's been a huge effort um, that you have seen, you know, come up where we've stood up and attributed together. This is a function of our stuff. We talk about it all the time. Um, My biggest hope. I
1: don't mean just talking about it. Although I'd say, in terms of publicizing this it's not as much on the radar as, for instance, persistent engagement, which has gotten a lot of play, right? It just isn't, whether whether that's fair or not. So I'm not really talking about publicizing that you have a deterrence initiative. I'm saying, you know, and this is always a delicate dance, how public are you about what, the, what kinds of consequences are you saying? What's the menu? What countries you might enlist? In other words, adversary and friends, right? So so I'm talking about that, the more granular level than what you've done now, which is conceptual, and that's good, But, but more of the the meat.
2: Well, we've done more than conceptual. We have done warnings. We have. There are things that have are, have occurred. We've stood up and attributed. You know, but we're still. You know, this is. You know, we've come out of a few year period where there wasn't a lot of high level attention paid to this. Definitely. We have a new administration that we are inculcating in, in these. In, in understanding what we've achieved, and especially what we've achieved vis-a-vis a large number of like-minded states who are very much uh, interested in participating in all of this. Because, you know, it's a we scratch your back, you scratch ours type of activity. If you stand together, the, the what the coalition does is dissuade tit for tat escalation if all Russia and China say when you accuse them of something is no we didn't do it you know and then they accuse you back and you get into again this loop of of accusations if you have twenty countries or thirty countries stand up and say we think you know you did it or if you did do it stop it and we don't like it the likelihood of that continuing or that devolving into something more um Aggressive or sinister, in my view, is a lot less. You have a much wider defense surface. Uh, Even, you know, I'm not calling it a. I, I think it should remain agile and voluntary. I think we have to, you know, deal with information sharing and attribution. And I spend all my time trying to convince everybody who will listen of the value of what we're doing because we have, in fact, demonstrated the value of what we're doing. So, So I mean, if you want to call it deterrence with a small d, the notion would be you do this enough without crying wolf. You do this enough and you do impose some consequences and we stand together. The goal would be to decrease the severity and frequency of some of these below the threshold activities. That might be a good
0: note to end on. Do we want to (laughs) give you the last word, Michelle, or was that the last word?
1: No, that was the last word. (laughs) Okay, Michelle, this has really been fun, though. This has been great. Okay, no, it
2: is fun. We should talk more.
1: Another two hours. So many other questions. (laughs) We're going to disagree more. Okay. See you later. All right, see you guys. Talk to you
2: guys later. Bye. Bye.
1: This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Singapore Cybersecurity Agency.